Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, August 13th. I'm Andrea Linares, and these are today's headlines. Florida once again breaking COVID-19 infection records. The states are registering nearly 25,000 new cases as the debate over masks in schools rages across the country. Extreme temperatures taking hold in the U.S., heat alerts are issued for nearly half the country, while a tropical storm takes aim at the southeast coast. And shocking new numbers coming in from the southern border, hundreds of thousands of migrants taken into custody in the month of July as border officials see the sharpest increase in decades. The details and more today on U News. We begin with the unraveling situation in Afghanistan. There's a very real possibility that it will soon collapse and fall into the hands of the Taliban. Militants rapidly seizing major control of territory, coming within just 80 miles of the capital, Kabul. Meanwhile, the U.S. is now urgently sending thousands of troops back into the country to help evacuate U.S. citizens. Afghanistan reeling as around 3,000 U.S. troops are set to deploy back to the region to help an emergency evacuation of some staff from the U.S. Embassy in Kabul as the Taliban's grip on the country tightens. The troops are to be stationed in Kuwait on standby, officials refusing to call the deployment a combat mission or an evacuation. Our job here now with this additional plus up is to help facilitate the safe movement of, of civilian personnel out of Afghanistan. The U.S. State Department warning all American civilians to leave the country immediately amid the deteriorating security situation. This is a prudent step, a prudent reduction. This as the Taliban took key southern strongholds overnight. The country's second largest city of Kandahar fell after heavy fighting. The government releasing video of some of the clashes. In just one week, they have taken at least 15 provincial capitals, including most of its major cities. Most Afghan forces being overrun, either surrendering or defecting. Some fear the Taliban could take the capital in just weeks, possibly by the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks. Those who have particularly have, have had any affiliation, direct or indirect, with the United States personnel programs, uh, projects, and so forth, are in imminent danger. As the conflict escalates, more than 18 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance in the region, according to the UN. Here, you can see children and families at the Haji camp for internally displaced people. The potential here for growing uh, terrorist capabilities and terrorist threats uh, deep within the heartland of, of, uh, of Afghanistan, the way bin Laden did, is very real. But with just weeks to go before the planned U.S. troop drawdown, the White House is sticking to its promise to end America's longest war. Our larger point here is ultimately the Afghan National Security Defense Forces have the equipment, numbers and training to fight back. For now, the Pentagon is not ready to rule anything out. I am not going to speak about uh, planning contingencies or potential outcomes. And the other thing I'd say is that no potential outcome has to be inevitable. Some say this U.S. emergency evacuation will be seen as a stunning admission of failure and a signal for anyone who can get out to do so as soon as possible.
Fueled by the Delta variant, the surge of coronavirus infections continues. The U.S. recording almost 800,000 new cases of COVID-19 in the last seven days, with about 80,000 people currently hospitalized. Healthcare facilities now improvising to keep up with the crushing demand as state governors turn to the federal government for help. Lorraine Caceres has the latest. The CDC meeting today to discuss booster shots. This after the FDA on Thursday authorized a third dose for the immunocompromised, such as transplant recipients and cancer patients. An additional dose could help increase protection for these individuals, which is especially important as the Delta variant spreads. Despite an increase in vaccinations. For the first time since mid-June, we're averaging about a half million people getting newly vaccinated each and every day. And overall in the last week, 3.3 million Americans rolled up their sleeve to get their first shot. The pandemic is still out of control in parts of the country. In the past week, Florida has had more COVID cases than all 30 states with the lowest case rates combined. And Florida and Texas alone have accounted for nearly 40% of new hospitalizations across the country. In Texas, the governor is now asking medical facilities to cancel all non-emergency procedures and search for out-of-state staff to address shortages. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis rolling out a new state treatment plan to help fight COVID-19, announcing Thursday that the state will start dispensing Regeneron monoclonal antibodies through mobile clinics. Meanwhile, in parts of Tennessee, there are no more hospital beds. And in Mississippi, starting today, the University of Mississippi Medical Center operating this improvised field hospital from its parking garage. The situation dwindling hopes of in-person classes for all students this fall as parents around the country fight mask requirements. Well, you know, I, I think this is going to be a very challenging school year. And the reason for that is the Delta variant is so contagious. Last year, we were able to get away with, with cohorting children. So if, if a case arised in one classroom, the chances it would go to another classroom weren't great if you kept those classes apart. With this strain, we're not going to be so lucky. So I think we're going to see a lot of schools shutting down. In Reno, Nevada, parents being questioned after knowingly sending their child to school infected with the virus. And in Broward County, Florida, four teachers dying of COVID-19 in just one day. At least three of them were unvaccinated. And regarding the booster shots for the immunocompromised, right now the recommendation is that people take that third dose no less than 28 days after taking the second dose of either Pfizer or Moderna. Back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Lorraine. Some troubling information there. And now we have some breaking news coming in. A federal judge now saying the Biden administration's new eviction moratorium can remain in place amid a legal challenge by the housing industry. According to that ruling, the ban implemented by the CDC can remain because it is strikingly similar to an earlier version that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled could stay in force. Meanwhile, a setback for renters in New York State 
Justices on Thursday temporarily blocked part of an eviction moratorium put in place by officials right there because of the coronavirus pandemic. The order was unsigned but appeared to break along familiar ideological lines over the dissent of the court's three liberal judges. The ruling temporarily lifts part of New York's policy which had precluded landlords from challenging a tenant's self-certified claim of financial hardship but the order does not interfere with a tenant ability to mount a so-called hardship defense in an eviction court proceeding. And with more and more universities requiring vaccinations for students and staff, the Supreme Court weighing in on those developments as well. Justice Amy Coney Barrett upholding Indiana University's new vaccine mandate. Barrett took the action Thursday to support an appeals court ruling that ruled the school's vaccination requirements could legally be enforced. Acting alone and not referring the matter to the full court could be a signal that similar vaccine mandates will also also likely be upheld. In the meantime, a university spokesman praised the ruling and pointed out that currently 85% of students, faculty and staff are approaching full vaccination. And now to a developing situation in the waters off Florida. Tropical Depression Fred, currently near Cuba, is slowly strengthening and could regain tropical storm status sometime today. The system has been dropping heavy rain across a number of islands, with the eastern half of Cuba now experiencing those conditions. Fred's forecast track will likely carry it toward South Florida by Saturday. The National Hurricane Center says 8 to 10 inches of rain are expected across the Florida Keys and South Florida by Monday. And from the growing threat of hurricanes now to intense heat hammering much of the United States, Rafael Rodriguez brings us the latest on dangerous temperatures expected in the coming days. Nearly half of the U.S. population facing dangerous heat. It's brutal out here. It's tough. It's, it's hot. 130 million people are under heat advisories with nearly 58 million under excessive heat warnings. Many are trying to find ways to escape temperatures that could be 15 to 25 degrees above normal. The water feels really good and stuff. It's 105, how could you not? Major cities like New York, Philadelphia, St. Louis, Seattle and Portland included in the highest level alert. And across the West Coast and especially in the Pacific Northwest, dangerous conditions many in the region dealing with the heat without air conditioning. We're setting up for a cooling shelter for the city of Portland. This is the second major heat wave the Pacific Northwest has faced just this summer. That last heat emergency was was pretty egregious, but you know, we, we still are dealing with uh, a lot of the same conditions now. It may not be 114, but it may be 105. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. Out west, firefighters battling the Monument Fire in Northern California are preparing for extreme fire weather. Thunderstorms forecasted for the fire zone could bring erratic winds and dry lightning. Those gusty winds could fan the blaze and lead to new fires emerging. The Monument Fire has grown to more than 67,000 acres. Containment remains at just 3%. Meanwhile, the Dixie Fire, currently the second largest in state history, is threatening more than 14,000 structures. Cal Fire says it's burned more than 500,000 acres and it's destroyed more than 1,000 buildings. The agency says 
it's 31% contained. We have late-breaking news. The Biden administration believes Russia is actively engaged in trying to influence next year's midterm elections. President Biden told the intelligence community he received a new update about Russian meddling. The news coming despite his direct warning to Russian President Vladimir Putin to stop when the two met in Geneva back in June. One official says Moscow's meddling now goes beyond influencing elections. Operatives there are reportedly working to sow disinformation on social media on topics ranging from vaccines to Black Lives Matter. The Treasury Department sanctioned 32 Russian groups and individuals in April for deliberately spreading false information about Biden to try to influence the 2020 election. And another major story we're tracking out of Washington. Long-awaited data from the 2020 census has finally been released, and that data revealing what many already predicted, that the U.S. over the past decade has become more racially and ethnically diverse than ever before. Edwin Pitti is live in Washington, D.C. Edwin, what could this mean for the nation moving forward? Andrea, the Census Bureau released population data used to draw congressional and state legislative district lines. It shows U.S. population growth slow overall last decade despite significant growth in large metro areas. Almost all of the nation's population growth was in its cities, while more than half of all counties saw a population decline since 2010. Most of the growth was driven by south and west, while the Midwest and Northeast trail behind. The U.S. population grew from roughly 309 million in 2010 to 331 million in 2020. That's the slowest population growth since the decade of the Great Depression. One of the biggest findings, it is the big, the big growth in Latinos who identify as more than one race, while the number of Hispanics who identify as white dropped significantly. The nation's 7.4% growth rate over the decade is largely propelled by a Hispanic boom. Our community population grew by almost a quarter over the decade. By comparison, the non-Hispanic growth rate was 4.3%. Hispanic stood at 62.1 million residents in 2020, or 18.7% of the U.S. population, up from 16.3% in 2010. The most Hispanic growth was in Florida, Texas, New York, Illinois, and California. Meanwhile, Asian growth jumped more than a third over the decade, rising to 24 million people in 2020. Now, Latinos accounted for 51.1% of the country's growth, rising, as we mentioned before, to 18.7% of the U.S. population. In contrast, the country's white population alone is shrinking and aging, while people identifying as white in combination with other races grew by 316%. The report, of course, comes more than four months later than usual, and census officials blame the pandemic for delaying the release of the data. Live in Washington, back to you, Andrea. Have a good weekend. Likewise, thank you, Edwin PD, for that report. And for many, one of the most revealing figures to come out of this 2020 census data shows that the U.S. non-Hispanic white population shrunk the most over the last decade, while the population identifying as Hispanic or Latino or multiracial grew the most. Joining us now to talk about these new numbers and their potential impact on Latino communities is Sonia Diaz. She's the founding executive director of the UCLA Latino Policy and Politics Initiative. Welcome to you, New Sonia. 
Thanks so much for having me. Let's start by actually taking a step back first. A lot of people have been waiting for this census data. Why is it so important? It's huge. It is integral to political voice, but also appropriation. So the idea of how we're going to be on a path towards recovery is consequential to the census data. It figures into so much of how we spend our money from the federal government to the state government to school districts. Now, one of the common takeaways we're already seeing is that the U.S. population growth over the past decade has been driven largely by Latinos. What should we and should we not take away from that data point? I think it's really important to ascertain that there were a lot of shifts in the demographic groups out of this census. We also know that the census was politically motivated. The Trump administration sought to include a national origin question, so we still don't know the undercount. What we do know is that two population groups are driving growth, Latinos and Asian Americans. And this necessitates a redistricting process, but also a mobilization process that clearly integrates and rewards those communities in places that they reside. What are the barriers you see to preventing Latinos from translating population growth into meaningful political power? There's so many. I mean, the first is the fact that voting rights are under attack. Over 47 state legislatures have sought to pass and enact restrictive voting. And this is in the face of widespread turnout for all major political parties. But one of the things about the census that is illuminating as it relates to the nation's diverse Latino communities is that Latinos were consequential in some of the congressional seat pickups. This is true of Texas that is slated to get two House seats and Florida slated to get one. They both had increases in their Latino population. Now, in another scenario, New York, Illinois, and California are all losing one congressional seat, but it's not on the back of Latino communities. Latinos in those three states increased their population. So when we redraw the lines, we should see Latino political voice and political power protected under the Voting Rights Act and their ability to elect their candidate of choice. That's what's on the line. Now, as you just noted, this census data will be used to form the basis for redistricting efforts across the country. So what's important for people to understand about how this process works and do regular people have any power to influence that process? Absolutely. This is huge. This essentially is going to dictate whether or not we are in a COVID-19 recovery that is equitable and centered on the needs of frontline communities. Communities like Latino workers who are really keeping things open, keeping people safe while they put their own families and households in danger with the virus. And so the way that people can engage is that there are state processes for redistricting. It in some ways, unfortunately, is convoluted. But if you live in a state like Arizona or California, there are independent redistricting commissions. Talk to these commissioners about what your neighborhood looks like, what is important, what is not being done. Ultimately, I think what is really top of mind right here is to recognize that Latinos are fueling growth. And so in places where the lines are dwindling, that should not come as a consequence to Latinos or Asian Americans or black Americans, because the only population between 2010 and 2020 that saw a downward shift are white Americans. And those are the holders of many of the political lines and political districts. 
these trends, an increasingly urban and increasingly diverse population here in the United States, do you expect them to continue in the years and perhaps decades ahead? Absolutely. I think that we're going to continue to see population growth amongst the two youthful and diverse electorates and demographic groups. Those are Asians and Latinos. Are they going to be at the same level as we've seen in previous census? No. Our birth rate um, is going the same way as other developing nations, including those in Europe, which is that we are not having as many babies and we ultimately are going to have a shortage of workers. This is where immigration is going to be very consequential for economic growth in the U.S. Well, thank you so much for all this information. Sonia Diaz of the UCLA Latino Policy and Politics Initiative. Thanks so much. Take good care. Thank you. And speaking of immigration. Speaking of immigration, the United States this week flew Central American migrants to southern Mexico, aiming to disrupt a pattern of repeat crossings at its border with Mexico. President Biden has reversed many of the restrictive immigration policies of his Republican predecessor, but he has left Title 42 in place, which allows for deportations deep into Mexico. Although health experts, pro-migrant advocates, and some Democrats say the policy cuts off access to asylum with a clear health rationale. Biden officials argue it is necessary to keep U.S. detention centers because of the pandemic. Meanwhile, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorga is touring the southern border on Thursday as shocking new numbers reveal just how many migrants attempted to cross into the United States in the month of July. Eileen Cardet brings us the latest on that situation. People are becoming increasingly concerned about the spike in migration flows from Mexico across the U.S. southern border, including Democratic lawmakers. We are talking about more than 1.3 million people who have crossed just this year. They can come in, but Mexicans who have visas, who come to spend money here, can't come in. Cuellar spoke alongside mayors and border leaders who have criticized the increasing number of migrants being released by the federal government and asked for international border bridges to be reopened to tourism. And the pressure is mounting, with migrant shelters saturated and reportedly 20% of the migrants having contracted COVID. Still, thousands are still coming across the Rio Bravo. Right now, we already have over a million people crossing our borders. There should be controls and not encouragement for more people to come illegally. Yesterday, during his visit to the border, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas asked for patience, promising that more resources will be sent to help migrants who have tested positive for COVID. We have a plan, we are executing a plan, but it takes time. Mallorca said that in July, U.S. Border Patrol apprehended 212,672 immigrants, the highest number in over 20 years. We, are we encountered an unprecedented number of migrants between ports of entry at our southern border. Of those, the government returned 96,000 to Mexico through Title 42. It is the first time since the beginning of the pandemic that most of the migrants who crossed are staying in the United States. Secretary Mayorkas also said that the plan is also to increase the number of flights taking deported people to places as far away as Tapachula, Chiapas. 
We are talking about the need to increase the number of flights to the interior of Mexico in the context of the relationship we have. These are the measures that make it more difficult for them to try again. Aileen Cardet, U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. That would essentially put an end to the longest war in U.S. history. This is the interior of a stash house that we found in this right along today. State authorities recommend avoiding them at night. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. Israel was one of the first countries to see a dramatic spike in coronavirus cases following the emergence of the Delta variant in India. Now, Israel is extending booster COVID-19 shots to include everyone over the age of 50, as well as medical teams. More than 750,000 people have received a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine since it was rolled out for people over 60 less than two weeks ago. Almost 6,000 new cases were reported on Wednesday, a plateau in the figures after a surge last weekend. Israel's vaccine rollout has been praised for its speed and efficiency. Meanwhile, in Italy, firefighters are working to contain wildfires burning in a nature reserve near Rome as an extraordinary heat wave is sweeping through the Mediterranean. About 30 residents have been evacuated so far. And in South America, wildfires have burned about half a million acres in an agriculture area of Bolivia near the city of Santa Cruz. Firefighters have been working for more than 17 days to stop the fire from spreading to dense forest areas nearby, battling through strong winds and warm temperatures. Weather conditions for next week are expected to be favorable for the fires to continue, unfortunately. And the U.S. Treasury Department said today it was imposing sanctions on two Cuban Ministry of Interior officials and a military unit over the Cuban government's crackdown on protesters last month. The department said it was sanctioning Romarico Vidal Sotomayor Garcia and Pedro Orlando Martinez Fernandez and the Tropas de Prevención of the Cuban regime. The Cuban embassy in Washington did not respond to a request to comment. In July, the Biden administration imposed sanctions on the Cuban police force and two of its leaders. The protests erupted in July amid Cuba's worst economic crisis since the fall of its old ally, the Soviet Union, amid a record surge in coronavirus infections. And now to potential progress for Venezuela as the government of Nicolás Maduro sits down in Mexico with members of the national opposition. Jorge Hernández brings us a look at what we might expect from those conversations. It's the eve of a dialogue, the eighth since Nicolás Maduro has been in power. Chavista and opposition delegates ended an exploratory phase sponsored by Norway. In Mexico, they will be meeting to seek agreements. It is a negotiation process trying to reach small agreements. And those agreements are political and economic. The opposition represented by Juan Guaidó has as one of his objectives to agree on an electoral timetable, which includes presidential elections in the short term. 
Hurricane says that Venezuela is looking for a solution. But for now, Maduro only has November regional elections on his agenda. The negotiation he's interested in is to get the United States and the European Union to lift the sanctions against him. We have to dialogue even with the devil. Of course we're going to dialogue with the devil. Maduro also wants recognition as president. That could put an end to Guaido's claim as interim president which presents another problem for the opposition leader. The opposition is not united, and one side is asking to go to vote regardless of the results of the dialogue. I believe that we have to vote. I believe it. And I believe that we have to motivate the people. But the expectations of Venezuelans are not political. Rather, many simply want relief to meet basic needs, like these mothers who were protesting Thursday in front of the Mexican embassy in Caracas. Sit down in Mexico, but sit down for the good of all Venezuelans, not for the interest of one. Almost 50 pairs of shoes were placed in front of the Mexican embassy, a reminder of the number of children who have died waiting for a kidney transplant, a procedure that hasn't been done in the country since 2017. Reported by Francisco Urrestieta in Caracas, Venezuela, this is Jorge Hernandez, U News. And speaking of vaccinations, immunization cards issued by the CDC have become ubiquitous here in the United States. But what happens if you lose this key document? Azul Alvarez has more on what to do if that happens to you. From the U.S. military to some big corporations and the most populated city in the U.S., what we have put in place related to indoor dining, indoor entertainment, indoor fitness is the shape of things to come. Vaccine requirements are becoming more common. As officials continue to say, getting vaccinated is the best protection against COVID-19 and the highly contagious Delta variant. We need to do everything possible to protect those that are not vaccinated. And those that are not vaccinated get protected two ways by those that are eligible for vaccination, getting vaccinated, and by wearing a mask. With more vaccine requirements, you will need proof of vaccination, which is on the card providers give you when getting a shot. If you don't have a copy or have lost your vaccination card, the CDC says to get in touch with your vaccine provider to access your vaccination record. Places like CVS say a new card can be printed, while others like Walmart now provide a digital vaccine record. You can also contact your state health department's immunization information system. The agency says to take a picture of your card as a backup copy. Azul Alvarez, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.